Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're going to be diving into Chapters 20, Life on the Road, and 21, Campsite, Life on the Road. is only about two paragraphs long, so excited to go ahead and put them together. And here you can see a vector image of the BSA Gold Star 500 that Toby borrowed from his Uncle Carlos to go on his trip to New Orleans. If you uh, are listening to the podcast, make sure you check out the YouTube video if you want to see that picture. So let's get started with Chapter 20, Life on the Road. And after I read the two chapters, we'll get into the themes and emotions. Now, remember, uh, Miguel has just left Central Texas, uh, the home of Lizette, after spending the night there with her. He's on his way to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and he feels like he can get there, not this day, but after one more night uh, out on the road, he'll get there the next day. I stayed at Lisette's house. What did I say? I, you said I stayed with her. Oh, yes, he stayed at the house. Like, because that could be misinterpreted. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Traveling on a motorcycle means gaining as much distance as I possibly can toward my ultimate destination, interspersed with stops for rest, food, bathroom, gas, oil, refilling my canteen, and the occasional moment of pure terror. I'm not eating much from the cans of beans and tuna that Uncle Carlos provided. I'm fortunate to have accumulated enough cash to buy my meals. Sometimes at the same place I purchase gas and refill the oil tank. Turns out Texas has more than its fair share of gas stations and hamburger stands. Riding a motorcycle, unlike driving in a car, leaves me open to a broad variety of sensory experiences. Changes in temperature, the direction of the wind, humidity, the sting of raindrops on my face at 65 miles per hour, and the occasional wayward bug that I strike, leaving a welt on my cheek. Smells and colors are enhanced. My relationship to the road and every other vehicle upon it is amplified. I eventually become part of the machine under me, sensing small differences in tire pressure or a change in vibration from one of the many moving parts. I memorize every sound the bike makes and the feeling of gas sloshing around in the tank between my legs. It is a perfect mode of transportation for the loner I pretend to be. Chapter 21, Campsite. After a long day's worth of riding, it is always a pleasure to find a national forest, a real boon for solo travelers. They provide a place to stop, start a fire, cook a meal, set up a tent and bag, and sleep peacefully out in nature, sometimes under the stars, if weather permits. I feel like at least one of the nights on this trip should be spent in one of those forests. I happen upon a beautiful, lush, heavily treed one that is on my route. Perusing the map on the glass-enclosed bulletin board near the entrance, I find markings for a series of campsites that look like they are near a river that eventually leads to a large lake. The forest is big enough that it's almost 20 minutes on a well-maintained dirt road before I arrive at the campsite. It's isolated from the others around it, but it makes no difference, as I seem to be the only visitor in this section of the forest. The sun is still up, so I should have time to catch some fish for my dinner. I know both the waters and the fish are very different from the trout I am accustomed to catching in New Mexico. In addition, I didn't bring any fishing equipment with me. No rod, reel, line, or hooks. But as I have before, I think maybe I can improvise something. A couple of years ago, I had gone with my mother, sister, and brothers on a picnic. My mother had arranged for a group of nuns to visit Monastery Lake, up above the town of Pecos, and not far from the river. There wasn't much for me to do. I became restless and said something to one of the nuns about 
how I would like to catch a fish or two instead of letting a perfectly good day of fishing go to waste. She dared me by saying, you can't catch a fish without proper equipment, can you? I accepted the challenge. I scrounged up a safety pin, a feather from a pillow, a length of string, and contrived a crude fishing rod from a willow branch. Sure enough, in about 20 minutes, I caught a fish. Everyone was surprised and clapped their hands in appreciation. That was a really good day. I take off my leather jacket because I noticed that Uncle Carlos had replaced one of the many zipper pulls on this jacket with a safety pin. Using the needle-nosed pliers from the toolkit, I fashion it into a rudimentary hook. For a line, I unravel the parachute cord that he had used to tie down my rig. I cut off a 10-foot length, cut a slit of about an inch in one of the open ends, and withdraw the seven strands of nylon cordage. From that, I separate a couple of nylon threads and tie them together with a fisherman's knot. That gives me nearly 20 feet of line. It's a short hike to where the river feeds into the lake. On the way, I collect a willow branch and around six... On the way, I collect a willow branch around six feet long, and I dig up some worms from a soft, muddy section of the riverbank. I tie the hook to one end with the nylon thread and tie the other end to my willow rod. I torture a worm onto the end of the hook and swing the line into the still water. One of the sunfish that is schooling in the area snaps at it before it reaches the bottom. Without a barb on the end of my hook, I simply use a sharp pole on the branch to bring him zooming past my head and onto the ground behind me. I use that trick three times to catch three medium-sized sunfish in about 15 minutes for my dinner. Add a can of beans, and it is practically fine dining. I bring the fish back to my campsite and build a fire in the rock-walled pit designed for it. Thankfully, the campsite's previous occupant had left a small pile of dry wood behind. Not having a grill, I scrape the scales from the sunfish, gut them, and skewer each one of them on a willow stick, planning to hang them to cook over the hot coals. The beans will cook in the can that I open with my tool on my Boy Scout knife. While they are cooking, I remember a package of grape Kool-Aid I can add to my canteen. In just a little while, the sunfish are searing and dripping fat onto the coals of my fire. The beans are warming up in their cans sitting alongside. I stir the coals with a stick as I drink heartily from my canteen of grape Kool-Aid. Suddenly, I hear a stirring in the underbrush at the edge at the edge of the campsite, about 25 feet away. I reach over into my saddlebag to pull out a flashlight that Uncle Carlos included in my kit. I scan the underbrush from left to right and back again with its light beam. Halfway through the second scan, I see a bear's head poking over the top of the underbrush. The bear's nose is sticking up in the air, sniffing and trying to determine the source of the aroma of cooking fish. In the time it takes me to look down at my fish and my fire, she steps out from the underbrush and is heading toward me and the food in a slow lope. I know it's a female because two cubs follow her out of the bushes. I try to remember all the things I'm supposed to do when encountering a bear, a black one in this case, of around 350 pounds is my guess. Heart racing and mind swirling, damn if I can remember whether I'm supposed to climb a tree or not. I wave my arms and yell at the top of my lungs, Hey, bear! Hey, bear! Hoping my impression of a not-so-scared edible will cause them to run in the opposite direction. Yelling doesn't seem to have any effect. The lure of the food outweighs my efforts to drive her away. Hey, bear! Hey, bear! Gosh darn it, bear! What the heck? I shout. Not having any other options I can think of at the moment, I quickly scramble to the nearest pine with a branch low-hanging enough to grab and pull myself up. I sit in that perch, my heart thumping wildly and my body shaking, to watch the bear slap the willow branches holding my fish in the direction of the two cubs. They begin licking, then eating my fish with a gusto, making a noise that, had I done it, would have been corrected by the Christian brothers or my mother. Damn it, bear, those were my fish. Hey, cubs, leave my fish alone. 
Meantime, the mama bear, realizing there is a great white hefty prize in a nearby tree, ambles over to the tree in which I am sitting, stands up on her hind legs, and starts smacking at it with her forepaws. Again, I yell, get the heck away from here, bad bear. For the life of me, I cannot recall whether or not black bears climb trees. Seeing no other choice, I climb another couple of branches higher. I look down to see that Mama Bear wrapped her forepaws around the tree and is using her hind legs to climb in my direction. Apparently, black bears can climb trees. My plan is to hold my ground and kick her in the snout with my boot if she gets close enough. Then, with enough noise and action to startle both me and the bear, a horse and rider come charging onto the scene. As he reins his horse back, it rears up. As the horse lands, the rider draws a revolver from the holster on his hip and fires two shots into the air, but away from the direction of Mama Bear and me. The looming appearance of this immense, wild cacophony causes Mama Bear to drop to the ground and run back to the underbrush, her two cubs already ahead of her. The rider dismounts and for good measure stands at the edge of the underbrush and yells, hee a couple of times, just to make sure the bears know he's claiming this territory. Returning the pistol to his holster, he strides back in the direction of the tree in which I'm hiding and looks up at me, saying, You know, black bears can climb trees. Yes, I do. I just couldn't remember which ones didn't. But at the time, it was my only choice. Why don't you get on down here? Let's make sure you're okay. I climb down from the tree and approach him. I'm covered in pieces of pine tree and pitch. I brush some of it, including a few pine needles, out of my hair. He puts his hand out, and I grab it. John Bolton, ranger for this district. Pleased to meet you. Some pine tar inside my hand makes for a sticky handshake, but he doesn't seem to mind. Like a cliche, he's tall, dark, and good-looking, wearing a khaki shirt with a forest ranger's insignia. He reminds me of my dad. His horse is dark brown and well-built with a big chest and hindquarters. He wears a white blaze on his forehead. He stands quietly and untethered behind the ranger, loudly breathing the night air in and out. Miguel, Miguel Eunice, I return. Miguel, what brings you to these woods? I tell my story another time and am surprised to find that Ranger Bolton doesn't seem to be at all surprised. He looks over what is left of my campfire and my dinner and asks, you got anything else to eat? I gesture with my thumb over my shoulder toward the bike some beans and tuna in my saddlebag. You probably don't want to open that can of tuna. It might be enough temptation to bring Mama Bear back in this direction. Why don't you pack up your gear and follow me to the ranger station? You can bunk there for the night. Mrs. Bolton has a pot of stew cooking on the stove, and there's plenty to go around. That would be much appreciated. Thank you, I respond. While putting my rig back together, Ranger Bolton douses the fire and cleans up the mess the bears had left behind. In these few minutes, I have time to think about all the goodness and kindness from a variety of strangers I have experienced on this trip. The world, I think to myself, is not such a bad place. I look forward to seeing a lot more of it, except for <clears throat> bears. I've seen enough of them. Only 24 hours to go until I get to Mardi Gras. That's the first thing I want to see of this exciting world that is opening up to me. All right. All bears can climb trees. All bears can climb trees, huh? Mm-hmm. I guess they, they can if they need to. Grizzlies aren't as astute, but if they have some food that they, they'll definitely if, climb. If they have a need to do something, they'll yeah, do it. Yeah, the, their behaviors are different. With black bears, you make a lot of noise, raise your hand, group up. With um, with grizzlies, if you can't get away, then you just lay down, cover your neck and your hand. <laughs> Hope for the best, huh? Yeah, that's about it. All right, some of the themes that we've... Uh, covered in these chapters are survival and resourcefulness, nature and wildlife, adversity and resilience. And some of the emotions we've uh, experienced here are loneliness and wanderlust, fear and danger, relief and gratitude, connection with nature, friendship and hospitality. Is there anything you would like to get into uh, that is especially prevalent for you? I like the uh, the themes, generally speaking, the survival and resourcefulness, because uh, for 
my for I, I like referring to him in the third person as if I'm not connected to him, but for his age, uh, he knew a lot of stuff. His father had helped make him an outdoorsman in the fishing and hunting sense, and then his own adventures on his motorcycle back into the hills of New Mexico taught him skills that he learned from his uncles and his father. I mean, and Boy Scouts. And Boy Scouts. Um, so I think the combination of that, the skills that he acquired as part of uh, being with the Boy Scouts and then uh, having those experiences with his father and uncles uh, made him, gave him that sense. I, I don't, I wouldn't have called it a survival mode. It was just the in, connected to nature mode. You know, um, it's fair when you're hungry uh, to make a fire and find a way to collect food so that you can eat. Um, being grateful, of course, for the food that you do get. Uh, you always say that little prayer, thank you for this gift of your food, you know. Um, and, you're, and you're speaking to nature. And it wasn't that he was ever uncomfortable with wildlife. I mean, he hunted bear with his father. Mm. Uh, he didn't hunt. He would go with his father on bear hunts and, uh, and deer hunts and antelope hunts. And um, his father was very good at it, very natural. He wasn't, uh, if you watch hunting shows of today, there's a lot of equipment, a lot of tactical planning, a, a lot of strategic and tactical planning, um, a lot of equipment involved. And my dad was just, uh, hey, we're going we're gonna to go here. We're going to stay three days and we want an elk. And he'd have one rifle and I don't know, like five rounds. I never saw him, <laughs> you know, it wasn't going to be a shootout for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of his uh, natural ability in nature like that, uh, hunting. And and I knew that he had done it growing up. He had, you know, he had 40 years worth of experience doing that by the time I came around. Uh, so, uh, and it showed. And he was very relaxed. Occasionally he'd go someplace else. Occasionally he'd hire a guide that knew the area, if especially if he's looking for elk, because elk is on um, the combination of uh, service lands, what I'll call like forest service lands and private property. But the people who own the private property, when they own those big acreages, they'll allow you to go on if you bring a guide with you. Hmm. And so antelope and, and elk, I remember him hiring guides. But at the same time, we didn't have an RV. I mean, we mm-hmm. had tents, we had canvas tents and uh, sleeping bags. He had a, a metal cot that folded out, a military cot that folded out uh, because he didn't like sleeping on the ground. He had, you know, at that age. Um, but he was very, very um, uh, relaxed in nature. It didn't bother him to be in nature. He was never excited about anything. And... Um, yeah, I I did see him. I was with him one time when he did get a bear, and it was he was just very relaxed with it. It was during the season. He had the correct license. He knew where to go. Uh, I'm trying to remember if he had a guide that time, um, and got the bear. So it was that kind of comfort comfort with nature, being resourceful, not necessarily survival, but I I always felt like if uh, we'd ever been put in a survival, and I think we've talked about in, on other shows about the categories of where you are in a thing, starting with the, I just cut my finger, to um, the, the flood just washed away our car and tent and, you know, and we're 40 miles from any place. So, and, and, and I kind of knew that order of things from the combination of Boy Scouts and being with him. And I never, uh, in my entire life, I never felt I was in category four or five. There were times where I realized, rats, I just ran out of water, you know, and you had to do something about that. But it was never, it was never, I was, even with the military, uh, except for survival training, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they put you in a situation where they give you a, a knife, a piece of rope and that's it. I think knife, a piece of rope. And you're supposed to get back to your uh, base in three mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. and not have died, you know. And you did okay on that? I, I did fine. I did uh, had no problems. As a matter of fact, I did, did better than most because I was willing to eat things that other people wouldn't eat, like, uh, like uh, you know. Grubs. Grubs and insects <laughs> and those kinds of things. Yeah. So yes. I didn't have a problem with that. I knew how to fish, that kind of thing. So, um but everybody, they're, they're not going to let anybody down uh, mm-hmm. out there. 
Well, in three days, as long as you have water, you're yeah, fine. Yeah, and you're fine. And, and at the time, I was it was North Carolina, so hmm. uh, there was plenty of resources. Hmm. You could have those. As far as uh, the theme of adversity and resilience, uh, adversity can can strike at any time. And what's amazing about adversity is it's always unexpected. You don't expect adversity. It just happens. Right. Um, you lose your way. You run out of something. You lose your, your you get lost, you know, um, and suddenly you have to face the adversity. And uh, the resilience comes in when you can start looking at these uh, this, these uh, situations of adversity and not panic and start doing things about him. And I think I've always been that way. I'm, and again, I'm, I've always been that way, perhaps because I learned it as young as I did. Um, you know, going, Being in school with the Christian brothers, being in college, being in the military, um, I, I don't see them as, ad, uh, I, well, I'm realistic. Am I in an adverse situation here? But it's never to the extent I've never found myself in a situation where this the adversity overwhelmed my uh, reaction to it. There's always a reaction. I need to do this or I need to do this. So it wasn't always right, but I always felt like taking action was the important thing to do. But taking action in a way that didn't uh, enhance this, the adverse situation, you know. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I think resourcefulness, I don't think you're born as a resourceful person. I think you learn it and then you just carry it with you the rest of your life. And I was, you know, I was fortunate to have the experiences I did in life that seemed to uh, teach additional lessons. You know, you survived the first five minutes. Now you've got to deal with the next three days. And uh, And I think I was very fortunate to have gotten experiences in Boy Scouts and with my the male members of my family, uh, so that by the time I was at this point, I, you know, like I said, if one of my children had told me at age 15 that they were going to get on a motorcycle and ride to New Orleans, um, I would have locked them in their bedroom, you know, <laughs> whatever you do without uh, throwing yourself in, uh, mm -hmm. in jail. Mm -hmm. Well, um, um, I guess when I was a kid, we did a little bit of going out boating and mm -hmm. camping and that sort of thing. But we had a camper on the truck. So mm -hmm. we had a indoor place to sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it didn't require a setup because we just drove in, in the truck and the camper was, you know, right there ready mm -hmm. to sleep in or eat in or whatever we needed. Had the little stove in there and a bathroom and everything. So, you know, it was, it wasn't a survival of, <laughs> by yeah, any means. Yeah. Um, and, and I enjoyed that when I was a kid, but I think as I got older, it was more of a, I don't want to be outdoors where the bugs are biting me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be uncomfortable, you know, and Kevin and I tried camping early in our marriage and we both kind of, cause he was a boy scout too, you know, mm -hmm. he, he and his uh, scout troop they used to do hikes all the time they hiked the grand canyon they were at philmont uh together mm -hmm. you know he'd done all of that and so and it was a big challenge for him to if you're going to go camping to how good of a meal can you cook mm -hmm. right can you bring your dutch oven and make something you know really fantastic over the campfire and that was a big challenge for him but um at, when we did it it was like I was kind of relying on him to do everything because I didn't know, you know, mm -hmm. anything. And um, I think it was just a bit too much, you know. And we tried camping out in the back of his pickup truck, which it was, there was not a lot of room back in right. that it's small a, bed of that yeah. pickup truck. And, uh, we, you know, he had the camper shell on it, mm -hmm. but it was still pretty cramped. Um, and I remember one evening he uh, was heating something up over the fire and he must have grabbed the uh, something fought really hot because I heard a sizzling and him yell. And then, you know, and I was inside the camper shell at the time and he was outside. So the first thing I did was just reach over, grab the aloe vera and came out, you know, and just poured it over his hands, which, you know, that's what I could do. Right. <laughs> I could do a little minor well, first aid. You know what? That, uh, that helps. You know, anything yeah. like that helps and showing concern sometimes. Yeah.
But so, and then after that, we kind of said, you know, our idea of camping is the Holiday Express, you know, or <laughs> Holiday Inn Express. We're just going to, we're not, we're not going to camp. Uh, you know, we did go camping a couple of times with a large group mm-hmm. um, and we had a tent one year and the next year we had an RV and I was like, it's just not for us to be mm-hmm. out. Even though he grew up doing it, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that he would choose to do as a vacation kind of a thing. You know, he wouldn't choose to go camping and sleep out doors when there's perfectly good hotels you can sleep in. Well, it's interesting uh, because that's, I think that's a personal, uh, a a reasonable position to find yourself in at some point in life. Like, oh, I'm okay. And that that's actually where I am, mm-hmm. right? Given a choice between staying in a campground in a pop-up tent, um, staying in an RV of some kind, or staying in a hotel, I am always going to option the hotel, Yeah. right? Well, I think on, that's human, isn't it? Yeah. But on the other hand, if I had the choice and we're, you know, we're going out in September, what, 14th mm-hmm. to the uh, Cosmic Campground and we're taking an RV with us or, or a trailer, a long trailer right. with us, camping trailer. Uh, but I would never see myself, I, I would have to spend a fortune in order to make myself comfortable enough in the tent style camping, you know? It would have to be a big, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and the kids, I never thought of them as they were outdoors, outdoorsy in an experiential way. Dad, let's go fishing, you know. And what you'd do is you'd find the one place in Virginia that still had ponds with trout in them, and you paid by the pound, mm. you know. So they'd go fishing. They never showed any interest in uh, hunting, anything like that. Um, whatever camping they did, but they'd go to camp every summer, you know, Mm -hmm. after they were about eight or nine. And uh, they looked forward every year to going to camp. And that was... But those were in cabins, right? Yeah, those were were in cabins, but they had uh, two two night or three night, let's, we're going in the forest in tents. So they did have that experience. The tents were the, you know, A-frame canvas tents. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly your pup tent, but but they took them out, made fires, roasted marshmallows, Mm -hmm. cooked their beans, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I was always surprised to find them looking forward, like, you know, when's camp this year? Because they went to the same camp every year, and they went with the same set of friends every year. It was, mm-hmm. it was more as much a friends thing as anything. But they were never like um, they were never uh, outdoors for them was riding the WNOD trail with Dad, you on know, a bicycle. on a bicycle, yeah, with water and snacks, yeah, you know. Uh, so, but, and, and I don't think any of them have that now. They've all, they've all gone camping in a way mm-hmm. I'm, because I've seen pictures of them. You mm-hmm. know, Patty will want to take out the girls and Francis will want to take out the boys. I think the, the most, uh, when it comes to the outdoors, it's the most, the most active is Ryan and, and the M babies, but, uh, they go out in a, I don't know. Well, they did do the glamping in the Yellowstone area. We saw they pictures did. of That's that, right. but that was more like a half cabin, half tent. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they have the trailer, and I think they're either getting they're getting a smaller trail trailer, but more efficient for them. Right. They weren't happy with the one they had. They did try that RV adventure, mm-hmm. the the big Class last A year. last year, mm-hmm. uh, and the kids are okay with it. They seem to like the outdoors, but uh, but a lot of their outdoors is the result of them going to the beach as often as they can. I think that's yeah. what that's how um, uh, Erica's girls uh, can that's the outdoors when you go to the beach, mm-hmm. you know. And then and then you go up to the restaurant on the <laughs> afterwards for <laughs> right. dinner and head home, head home. So hit the showers. Yeah. And... Yeah. So they do they're outdoorsies. I just saw a note from Ryan that uh, Ragnar I'm not I'm sorry from Toby Renee that uh, Ragnar starts his first soccer practice okay. well he is too after all yeah, yeah gotta start <laughs> him early three? yeah i, don't know. Uh, he's I think he's close he's close to three he evidently is big enough to because they have a uh you know a well, team his birthday's in may so he's either two and a half or i think he's two and a half I don't yeah know. anyway <laughs> two and a half gotta start soccer all right well gotta keep up with the europeans i mm. guess well, part of it, I mean, they're both, to them, they still both play soccer. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I'm not, and, and Francis coaches, of course. So he's looking like we all do. And and he's an experienced soccer player as well as an experienced coach. So he's looking forward one day to coaching his own boys, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, to, to 
touch on these emotions. In the first chapter on the road, uh, there is that line, uh, it's the perfect mode of transportation for the loner I pretend mm -hmm. to be. Yeah. And why did, why did uh, you write it that way? Because, uh, because I think sociologically speaking, when we say someone is a loner, it makes it very, they're very identifiable. They don't have social circles. They don't have family. They're, they're loners, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they're few and far between because it's hard in American society with their social media to be a loner because even a loner is going to have social media and, and come in contact with people. So I think loner is a, a, a biker perception, you know, a rebel without a cause kind of uh, perception because I don't think of Miguel as a loner. He had friends, he had uh, circles, he belonged to chess and tennis, and you know he wasn't that uh, the kid that stayed in his uh, dorm room and read books. You know, nerd nerd like it, it wasn't that. But uh, being on a motorcycle, you always because it is a very lonely kind of way to travel. Nobody to talk to, and even if you could, you can't listen can't hear anything. Um, but it's, a. I think that goes along with being uh, a bike, a motorcyclist. Mm. It's like, yeah, you're, you're just me and my bike, man, just me and my, take on the world, you know? <laughs> and and uh, so I don't think, I don't think he was experiencing the kind of loneliness that someone would experience if they didn't have family and friends. That's a very different kind of loneliness, right? And it may or may not be self-induced, but uh, you can't be uh, uh, emotionally lonely when whenever you get back, you tell your friends and your family your stories, right? That's You don't really have the loneliness uh, uh, Lego block in you. It's just a, a biker, lonely, tough, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you get to go home and tell everybody about your... Mm. Yeah. You're the your experiences. You're the hero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the story. So yeah, you're you're uh, by yourself in that way. And I've never thought. I don't think there was any Joseph Campbell. I don't recall having written into the hero's journey the necessity to be lonely. Mm -hmm. There were times where the hero has to face uh, situations alone. Right. But they, you know, there's all those characters that come along with the hero's journey that uh, Campbell and others have identified. Um, so that the hero can surround themselves with. And so they're never lonely heroes. Isn't that interesting? Um, I never thought about that before, but you did go on this trip by yourself. You encountered other people along mm -hmm. the way, of course, and you got their help whenever you needed it. But you made the plan and you followed through on the plan and it was all you doing it, not, hey, Joe, come with me or hey, mm -hmm. You know, uh, best friend, come with me on this trip. You never, uh -huh. never did that. You just said, I'm going on this trip. This is me. Uh, this is a coming of age story. This is you proving to yourself that, you know, you, you can, uh -huh. I can do this. I want to do something and I'm going to go do it. I've never experienced that myself. I've never gone on like a trip by myself, like said, you know, I'm going to go do this by myself and, you know, Nobody needs to go with me. I'm not even going to invite anybody along. I'm just going to go do it. Mm -hmm. Never done that. I've always had to be with somebody. And I, I think that's fairly common for especially women. Now, there's some women who will go out on their own and do, you know, adventurous things, of course. As they're all on YouTube. Yeah. Right? Making making videos about how they spend time alone. Yeah. And then get, and they have 91,000 subscribers. But they're not alone because yeah. they're performing the whole time. That, that's the whole point, right? Yeah. So I think it's the difference between experiencing loneliness and experiencing independence. Mm. I think what you described, the planning, the idea, the planning, the going forward with the planning, the execution of getting the motorcycle, I don't think any of that is an expression of loneliness because he, he needed people the whole time to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Lonely, lonely people don't have people that they can rely upon right. because they're not establishing those kinds of relate, relationships. So it's I think I think you you didn't quite say it, but it's the difference between uh, someone who's experiencing loneliness and someone who's experiencing independence. Yeah. Miguel, throughout all of this, experiences independence. I don't think there's one time and I, I, I don't recall one time feeling lonely. 
like mm-hmm. sitting around a campfire. I didn't even, in this case, I didn't even get the chance to sit around the campfire. And I think it might be something I should probably explore sometime in the future, though, is, um, you know, I don't have to have somebody go with me in order to go someplace, you know, yeah. more than the store. But like if I said, you know, I want to go visit uh, a place and do a thing and I don't have to have anybody go with me. So uh, uh, the lesson that I that I hope that I taught the children was uh, experience it, right? Find out. So when somebody says, uh, for the most recent example is somebody asked Toby Renee to host a roundtable for 25 people at this event in New York City that it, she was going to have to go to anyway. That was new to her. And I think uh, she said, okay, that's her first reaction to say, okay. Her second reaction is call me and say, what do I do? You know? And we talked a little bit about it, but I don't recall having a conversation where I described everything. I told her what to kind of expect. And the feedback that I got from both seeing her pictures and, and what she did was that it was very successful for her. And I noticed this week she agreed to take on a presentation with uh, Amazon corporate. Uh, to pitch her product uh, mm-hmm. to them. So uh, so I think what happens is you realize that somewhere in you, you have the confidence to try these new things um, and not not prevent yourself from experiencing, experience, the, again, the sense of independence. Um, and, you know, one of these times, I'm sure you're going to have to get on an airplane and go visit one of your kids. And you may or may not have somebody go with you. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long time in my experience because of the life that you led with your husband that you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to worry about reservations and tickets and making sure the Uber picked you (laughs) up, et cetera. Yeah, because Kevin, I'm sure Kevin took care of all that. He was my travel agent. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I think it's going to be the little things. And I think some of that's happening to you right now as you experience dealing with the the, uh, finances, you know, and dealing with... Uh, uh, people who are calling about uh, credit situations and you're dealing with a trust fund now and you're how you, how to protect your income and uh, uh, more importantly, how to protect your regular income. And those are all new experiences. And I really admire the way that you're taking them on. Yeah, we do have conversations, but at the end of the conversation, you and I both know you already knew the right thing to do. You just hadn't done it before. And so I think there's going to be a great opportunity for you uh, to uh, experience uh, a sense of independence, a sense of adventure, and a sense of wanderlust, and grow into that. Just because you've never done it doesn't mean you don't have the skills and the abilities necessary to do it. I, I imagine that there are going to be points in time where you're going to say to yourself, I've never been to X. I'm going to X. Um, and you'll be able to afford it both in terms of time and money. And uh, you may want to experience it in an independent, adventurous, and wanderlust kind of way. Yeah. I might go to Frank- Frankfurt. Yeah, exactly. Because I have family there. You have family there. <laughs> yeah, imagine that, how good it would be to go visit them and maybe even take a side trip to Portugal to see where... Uh, they placed Kevin's remains, for example. Yeah. Well, and I did, if I think back, I did take my daughter, Alicia, on uh, oh, the Australia quite, trip. The, quite the tour in, in the summer of 2010. She was, I think, four, she was 15, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we started off by flying to um, BWI. Then we took a train to Philadelphia. And we met up with some friends there who were from New Jersey. And we went to a concert, and then they took us to their place in New Jersey. We stayed there a few days. Then we got on another train, and we went up to, um, I think it was Montreal. Yeah, Montreal uh-huh. uh, on the train. And then other friends picked us up, took us to their house. We stayed there a few days. Then we flew home from Montreal. Uh, they took us back to Montreal. We flew you know, Toronto and then back home. And then um, that was also the same summer that we flew to Australia. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was a, that was a crazy, cause I just said, oh, let's, let's just do it. You know, and we got 
the tickets and and we were flying what's called um, non-rev standby or interline rates. So it was extremely cheap to do uh, compared to what most people would pay $2,000 to fly Mm -hmm. round trip to Australia back then. Uh, We paid $200. Wow. So it was totally worth doing because it was, you know, a big exciting trip and we had a friend out there that we were going to go visit. But as we got on the plane and she was seated somewhere else than I was because it was, you know, we were the last people on the plane. We took the last two seats. And as soon as we sat down, I was like, let's go. And we took off. So I didn't know where she was for most of the flight to Australia. And I was just kind of like, oh my God, I'm going to be all alone. My phone doesn't even, you know, work in Australia. And and I was just freaking out about it because I was like, have I even really thought about this? My husband's not with me. Nobody's with me. I'm the adult in this situation. And it was a little bit scary. (laughs) And you survived. And we survived. And had fun. We had fun. The trip home was a lot harder because she had to say goodbye to her boyfriend. And yeah, that was a lot of boohooing on the way home. Mm. Yeah, it was it was an an adventure for sure. Well, I'm sure at that point in time, she never imagined that she would meet a rocket scientist and marry him. No, she's happy that she did. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and now she has a new puppy. Um, fear and danger. It was scary. Yeah, uh, I have to admit that you don't uh, run into a bear like that who's who's not only eating your food but chasing you up trees. Um, and you realizing that you don't remember enough about bears to remember what to do, you know. Well, let's move ahead into some fear and danger of, okay, that's danger, but something you could run away from. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the middle of a war zone, you can't run away from mm. the fear and the danger. Did this prepare you in any way for that? Well, nothing prepares you for being in war. Nothing in, I mean, short of the training that you've received, right? You've had training, but when it gets down to the moment that that uh, somebody's shooting at you and you're shooting back uh, to ensure you're protecting yourself, and it's very chaotic. There is no, there is no. Oh, look, he's shooting at me. Let me shoot at him, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's you're putting as many rounds out as as you can, and they're doing the same thing. And by this time, of course, the enemy had uh, semi-automatic to automatic weapons as well. It wasn't like World War II where, you know, the Americans had the semi-automatic Garand M1 and the uh, Germans had bolt-action Austrian-made rifles. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, they could put out as much firepower, kinetics, as we used to call it, as you could, if not more sometimes. Um, and... So there's nothing that prepares you for that that eventuality. Um, and but after a while, I think what happens is you're so involved in protecting yourself and your brothers that you don't think about it until afterwards. Afterwards, there is what I referred to as the shaky cigarette moment, mm. <laughs> right? If you survived the event, everybody would find a little place kind of eyes well, like, boy, I hope that never happens again, knowing it will happen again. Mm. And you try to light a cigarette, you know, and it's one of those mm-hmm. as your adrenaline starts pumping uh, through you and you, you can't stop the shaking and you just imagine. And there's, it's really funny because I think everybody experiences that three to five minutes of, I just need to figure out where my mind is with all this. And then it gets back to the interaction and planning and what, what, what are we going to do now? And, how did that happen? And et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I don't remember who actually wrote that uh, war is uh, 90% boredom, boredom interspersed with 10% of sheer terror. Mm-hmm. And you don't have time to think about it until afterwards. It, 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 and of course, there's always the option of you get killed. But when it's happening, you're not thinking about being fearful or terrorized. You're just trying to get out of it. And the only way you get out of it is to do your job and to ensure that everybody else around you is doing their job. And um, and so there's nothing, I, I don't think, short of the training that you get before you uh, go into a combat situation in the military, the training you get is probably the best that it, it can. And, and I know from experience 
the drill sergeants that I had at both uh, basic training and AIT did were all Vietnam veterans, mm. and they did everything they could to prepare you. And any time you made a mistake that was going to get you killed, they would say, "That's going to get you killed." Right? Don't don't screw with the VC, Sergeant Berenke. Don't screw with the VC. <laughs> they kill you. <laughs> it was Filipino, a Filipino American. Um, so there's nothing that really prepares you for that. And there's nothing wrong with being afraid. Uh, but you're never afraid enough to curl up in a hole and shake yourself into a crying oblivion. You're afraid, you know, you're getting a little adrenaline pump and being aware of your surroundings and being using every sense you have to pick up what's around you. Um, so while I think experiences like these early in life set a mindset, you know, um, the, the mindset that I've got to do something here, I'm not going to collapse because that happens. There's the guy that just, you know, he's a draftee. He goes to eight weeks of basic training, eight weeks of infantry, and then they send him to Vietnam. And uh, the first time he experiences combat, it's just, he collapses. He finds himself a hole and digs it deep as he can, right? And if he's lucky, he doesn't get killed. And, uh, but my experience, had, you know, I had the uh, advantage of almost a year and a half's worth of training before I went overseas. Mm. And so I, I knew what, I kind of knew what to expect. My, my last assignment before I went overseas at Two Rock Ranch was target area orientation training. And you spent eight weeks learning everything that you needed to learn about Vietnam, the people, the enemy, the situation, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there were, I don't feel like I was surprised by anything uh, except the uh, walking out of the aircraft into what felt like a wall of humidity. <laughs> that was just amazing. It was just so, I had never experienced that. There was nothing that I've had in my life when I experienced that. It was, mm. So that was a, that was a, the only, the only surprise than, mm. you know, dealing with the people and the crowds. and uh, But I hadn't done anything up until that point to prepare me. And then, of course, once I had that experience, all the other situations I was in after that were perfectly like, oh, okay, yeah, I should have expected that kind of thing. Mm. No. I wouldn't call it a big adventure, uh, mm -hmm. but it was a great, it was a, thankfully a memorable useful experience mm -hmm. uh, because my reaction to it is I would never want my children to have to go through that, especially if it wasn't on our shores, if we weren't defending our shores or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, I was, I was, I, I believe that I had earned the right that if one of my sons had said, I don't want to go in the military, I don't want to join the military, I would back them. You know, I don't want to be drafted. And I would, I would back them. Uh, and I think I had, I felt like I had, her, had earned that right. Um, because there, I don't know, you, there are people who are made to join the military. And then almost everybody else isn't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think I was okay with it. I, mm. I, I, having volunteered for almost everything that I did, um, I was never surprised or disappointed. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to make a weird comparison that uh, childbirth, mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, you think I want to have a child, you get pregnant, you go through all the books, you know, and the classes and then it happens. And it's, of course, it's different, not only for every person, but it's different for every baby that every mm -hmm. person has. So every experience is completely different. You can prepare as much as you want but you never know how your body's going to react mm -hmm. until it's time for it to happen, you know, where some women's bodies just don't react the way that you would think that they should. And they end up having a C-section or something else, you know, um, they may just have a really, really long labor and that may be quite difficult. Or in my case, it was actually quite easy, um, which I was grateful for, <laughs> but you don't know how it's going to be uh -huh. when you're in the middle of having these contractions and the baby's coming and you're just like, I, I hope it's fast, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it's not like this all, you know, for days and days. Um, 
and then you don't know the recovery, how it's going to be either. So uh, I just compare it to that, I guess, that, you know, you can prepare as much as you possibly can, but then you're going to have to be resilient at some point because it's going to be, you know, unexpected things are going to happen. I have always held a strong opinion that if the male of the species had been made responsible for procreation, the race would have died out after two <laughs> well, generations. Perhaps, or perhaps it would have just been the other way around, you know, with the women in charge and telling the men that their bodies were under their control, you know, the women's yeah. control. Um, uh, but I do want to <laughs> add that I always admire the Eunice girl's propensity for having babies. Like, yeah. It just like, oh, yeah, we're going to have another one. Mm. You know, you always think to yourself, they don't necessarily have it in them. They, they grew up in Fairfax. They don't know what, you know, they babysat. Yeah. They didn't have the babies. But I'm always amazed that they're going, yeah, we're going to have another one. And we're going to have another one. And I don't know when it's going to stop. <laughs> but as long as they're producing grandbabies, I'm happy. Well, and I finally, I think finally we get into the relief and the gratitude and the friendship and the hospitality when Ranger Bolton comes uh, riding in out of the blue on a horse. And who did you, uh, who were you thinking of when you wrote about him? Uh, I was, um, I was thinking about a man who I knew uh, through his wife. I worked one summer uh, with a woman whose name was uh, Catherine McGee. And um, she was a very outdoorsy type. They lived in the they lived in the hills around Santa Fe, but she was very bright. She was a computer sciences major, and that was a summer that I was working uh, data inputting at the Department of Automated Data Processing, as I did. I, I worked different places every summer, but she was one of the um, systems analysts there that was designing systems for these, you know, big. Uh, mainframe computers at the time. She was married to a man whose name was Bucky McGee. Literally, that was his name. He was a forest ranger. In his career, he had been struck by lightning seven times while riding in the forest. Uh, three of those cases, the horse was killed from under him. You know, that kind of thing. But they would invite me to the, every weekend with them. It was invite friends up to their cabin above Santa Fe and have a cookout of some kind. And sometimes he, he wasn't there because he'd have to be working. But when he was there, he would come riding in on a horse. And he always made a show of riding on the horse. He had this thing where he would ride in and the horse would rear up and he'd settle down and then he'd kind of jump off. And uh, and everybody would go, yay, we'd all cheer like <laughs> He survived another one. Bucky like a Wild West show. And he was, he was like, you know, he was 6'3", 200 pounds, solid as a rock, friendly. Uh, he had the biggest, he was tan and had blue eyes. And so the blue eyes just stood out. He had this big white smile. And he loved his work, just loved his work uh, in the forest and, uh, loved writing in the forest and, and fighting fires and all these other things. We love to hear his stories like that. And I think um, Ranger Bolton was a lot like that in terms of characterization, but it's based on, it was all based on uh, my, my experiences with Bucky, Bucky McGee. Couldn't have a better name, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we'll talk more about Bucky and his wife next week when we get further into uh Miguel's adventure, uh, spending the night with the Boltons, and uh, the next day, uh, we'll we'll get into that next week. Mm -hmm. um, but is there anything else you wanted to touch on this week? No, I think um, again, as he experiences this, uh, if there was any sense of loneliness that he was experiencing, he's losing that as the the trip extends itself because he's having. You know, as uh, as uh, your son Jared said, nothing bad happens to him. You know, yeah, he got chased up a tree by a bear, but then Bucky McGee comes riding in on a big brown horse, you know, on a big brown horse and saves him. But um, but I think what he's recognizing is that for as difficult as the world can be sometimes, because you've lost your father and because you have a terrible relationship with your mother, that shouldn't prevent you from experiencing 
all the things that you can experience by not being lonely. Being lonely avoids being a lonely person, claiming that you're a lonely person, avoids the potential for interaction with mostly good people. And I think that's what he's starting to realize. That There's other people in the world besides mom and dad. Exactly. And, and so whatever relationship you have with your mom and dad shouldn't be addressed in the context of all these new people that you're experiencing and gaining insight by. You're gaining from them, right? You're gaining from that experience. And it's you're not taking it away from them. They're offering it uh, freely, you know, uh, in, in a way that indicates to you, like, they don't, they don't have to do this for me, but they are. Right? Mm -hmm. How can you want to be a lonely person when you have good people all around you to experience? And I think that's what's happening, right? He's not the rebel without a cause. He's just on an adventure. And the adventure means that he's going to meet a lot of interesting people um, who are going to provide him a sense of camaraderie and fellowship and warmth and caring. And uh, that's those are life-changing things that happen to somebody who's 15 years old, who's, you know, rebellious and still mad about his father being passed away and still angry about the relationship that he had with his mother. I think maybe this helps him let go of that a little bit because he does start to see there are other people in the world besides mom and dad. So I don't need to, they don't need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Because I can get what I need from other people, you know, whether that's an uncle or a Christian brother right. or a ranger, Bucky McGee, or mm -hmm. whoever it is, whatever it is you need right then doesn't rely solely on mom and dad. That's correct. And I think uh, uh, this was probably the beginning of that recognition that he didn't, as much as he loved his mother, he didn't need to have his mother in his life to the extent that he couldn't experience other things. And I think that's what he's finding out that there's other people in his life that are going to have a, a, a positive influence, a behavioral influence on him uh, so that he can go on and enjoy life and not be, you know, he has the potential just because of the combination of his father having passed away and um, uh, the relationship with his mother, which isn't, isn't the best. Uh, of being that kind of lone, loner, let me just hide in, you know, whatever library I can find and bury myself in the books or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, he's, if there had ever been that kind of potential for him, it's gone after this mm -hmm. because of the broad variety of uh, individuals he encounters and what happens in each of those encounters. He comes out a better person, a more uh, emotionally knowledgeable, if, if that's possible, you know, and emotionally you, you're, you're emo you've gained new senses, new emotions as a result of all these encounters. And I think that's kind of the part of the hero's journey. Uh, the hero comes back stronger and wiser and with a boon, you know, yeah. Uh, he always comes back with something that was greater than what he left with. And I think that's what's happening here. He's not going to come back with a boon. The boon is going to be his um, his emotional uh, and spiritual growth uh, through this. He will have gained by this experience and not come back and found himself, ah, I just want to crawl in my hole. You know, this is probably the beginning of the kind of personality that eventually I developed which was a more outgoing and extrovert rather than an introvert. If you were an introvert before this adventure, uh, then there's something wrong with you, right? There, there's, you, you're, you're in need of counseling or therapy at that point. You can't have had this adventure starting as an introvert and not coming back as an extrovert with a new appreciation for the gifts that life has given you. And I feel like that's what happened. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap things up, and uh, we hope that you enjoyed the today's chapters 20 and 21, Life on the Road and Campsite. And you'll join us again next week when we get more into 
what it is like for Miguel when he meets the Boltons and enjoys dinner and spending the night in the bunkhouse. Why did we decide on John Bolton? It was the name that we found in a graveyard in the area. Oh, was we it? Oh, yeah. okay. Oh. When we were in Louisiana. I was trying to remember when you said it. I thought, when? when, when <laughs> was, how did we pick John? It was a popular name for that area. I guess. Yeah. So, so we went with that one. All right. Uh, anything else? That's it. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters.